Nisambolovinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Go or Koroi Hawkins. Coming up, there are calls in Fiji for investigations into the government's close association with a Korean doomsday Christian cult called Grace Road Church. So we just wanted to get all those facts out there uh, in a climate where a lot of people feel like they can't talk. Also, we speak with the deported vice-chancellor of the University of the South Pacific. From our calculations at the moment, it's 78.4 million Fijian dollars that hasn't been paid. Of course, it's affecting the university. And a re-elected government minister in Papua New Guinea is calling for tighter control of the Electoral Commission and the scrutiny of candidates. Two former Fiji prime ministers and a former central bank governor are calling for investigations into the Fiji government's close association with a Korean doomsday Christian cult called Grace Road Church that is reportedly benefiting from millions of dollars in state-backed loans. On Tuesday, leading investigative journalism organizations, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP, and the Korean Center for Investigative Journalists, KCIJ, published a major expose that zeroes in on the rapid expansion of the controversial Grace Road Church business empire through Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama's Fiji First Government's help. Fijian authorities have not responded to the claims made in the report, but Fiji's Attorney General and Economy Minister Ayas Said Kayum, when pressed by local journalists on Tuesday about the report, chose to question its authors. No, I, I do have a response to that, actually, because uh, you're just simply plucking out uh, some report written by some organization who we have never heard about before. Uh, you're giving it credibility uh, to an organization such as that. RNZ Pacific has contacted Grace Road for comment. But former Prime Ministers Sitiveni Ramboka and Mahendra Chowdhury, who are leading the People's Alliance and Labour Party, have labelled the close links between the government and Grace Road as a disgrace. It's a disgrace that this foreign sect, whose founder is serving jail time in Korea for abusing its adherents, has been given the red carpet treatment by the Fiji First Government, Rambuka said. What equity did they bring as part of the deals to justify the $8.5 million lending, he asked, adding it seems that this government will willingly leave Fijians behind for the sake of assisting their own rich foreign friends. Another former Prime Minister, Mahendra Chowdhury, said he hoped the findings uncovered by the OCCRP will bring out the truth. Many here have questioned whether the Fiji police investigations into the complaints against the group have been hamstrung by political interference, Mr Chowdhury said. It's believed that a number of powerful people may have personally benefited from the activities of the Grace Road Group in return for favours extended to it. We've raised this issue many times before, but without results because the group appears to have the backing of the government top brass, who have not hesitated to defend them even in Parliament. Former Reserve Bank of Fiji Governor and leader of the Unity Fiji Party, Savinada Narube, says they have watched with great concern the friendly relations between the Banimarama government and the sect. We have seen the rapid expansion of Grace Road into sectors that are reserved for the Fiji citizens and companies, Narube said. We have been informed of the rapid processing of their business applications compared to others. We have seen many foreign workers in jobs that would be easily filled by locals. We are concerned about the allegations of physical and mental abuses within the sect. I'm joined now by Aubrey Belford, the lead Pacific editor at the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. 
Kira and welcome on Pacific Waves, Aubrey. Now, you guys are relatively new in the Pacific. Tell us a little bit more about the project. Sure. So our organization, OCCRP, uh, we started in Europe 15 years ago. Uh, we started in Eastern Europe, you know, where there's really big problems with this kind of interlinking of really serious uh, organized crime and politics. And what journalists there found is that the networks that are involved in doing, you know, serious bad things are international uh, in a way that journalists just weren't and in a way that you know, police and other authorities are not. So the idea is that you get together and you collaborate in order to take on these big targets. So, you know, we've done a lot of reporting over the years on, for example, Russian organized crime and, and the Kremlin, and we've looked at stuff in the Middle East and Africa and, you know, drug cartels in, in Latin America. Um, and so we've just started to now do this in the Pacific and we're doing that same approach. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm the face of this particular story, but this is actually a, a collaborative community effort. And this is a Pacific effort. And we also got a bit of help from Koreans because this was also a Korean story. But this is really a, a grassroots effort to try and really get strong evidence of what's going on. You know, everything's got to be documented and rigorously fact-checked. And this has got to be something we've got to stand by. Why this story? How did you get wind of it? Uh, so I actually came uh, out into the region just late last year. Uh, and so when I started talking to, to journalists and people around the Pacific, the story of Grace Road in Fiji was one of those great open secrets. You know, there have been things written about it. Uh, there's a lot of gossip about it, you know, how big and powerful this sector's become and a lot of gossip about, you know, what people think their, their links are with the um, Bainamarama government or favoritism from the government. So that's how we got wind of it. And then it was just about trying to work out the facts. There's a lot of issues in this story, very complex, intertwined story. For you, what were the core standouts, like in terms of, of what you would, you would see as requiring addressing in terms of what you've exposed? Well, the core issue with Grace Road in Fiji is this perception that they have been given the red carpet treatment by the government. They showed up in the country less than 10 years ago. And in that time, you know, there's about 400 of them. And in that time, they've managed to build, you know, what is now one of the biggest business empires in the country. They have, um, we counted 54 business establishments currently running in the country. 55, if you count the huge farm they have in Nauvoo, west of Suva. They have uh, five mobile petrol stations, six supermarkets, you know, some of them that are the size of aircraft hangars. Uh, they have, you know, the country's largest chain of restaurants, they have a dental clinic, they have beauty clinics, I mean, they're really everywhere. Um, and, you know, a lot of people really like their services, the quality of the food is very good. Um, you know, the, the service is there, that is really good. Um, but the other issue is, is that, you know, they have been documented to carry out these abuses uh, against their own members, you know, regular beatings. Uh, taking people's passports away, you know, they're working without pay. So they have this very strong business advantage. And what we were able to uncover was that they have received millions of dollars in loans from the Fiji Development Bank that no one knew about. And also that the uh, police investigation that's meant to have been going on for the last couple of years into these abuses happening in Fiji has really gone nowhere. Uh, and we were able to prove that you know, Fiji police went to South Korea. They spoke to key witnesses who gave them, you know, um, 
evidence or, or testimony about suffering abuses at the hands of the sect in Fiji, this same testimony was enough to secure conviction, by the way, in a South Korean court. But suddenly in Fiji, it's, it's just not enough. And there's been no transparency about it. So really what we're trying to do is just bring all of that to light. You know, there is a very strong perception that there is favoritism from the government. And, and the PM, Banimarama, has very, been, been very public in his support of Grace Road as a business group. So we just wanted to get all those facts out there uh, in a climate where a lot of people feel like they can't talk. And, you know, even now, um, there's been a big reaction to this, but still there's a lot of fear and a lot of people seem to be looking to each other for cues about how much they can speak up about this. Fiji, you know, Fijian media laws are very repressive. So it's a really, it's a really difficult situation. The Vice-Chancellor of the University of the South Pacific, Pal Alwalia, says the Fiji government's refusal to pay its subsidy over the past three years is hurting the regional institution. Professor Pal Alwalia, who is now based in Apia in Samoa, after being forced out of Fiji last year over a spat with the Fiji government, says the withholding of such a significant amount of money must have an impact. Professor Alwalia spoke with Don Wiseman, who began by asking about his move to Samoa. It's a known fact that I was deported from Fiji and it was our council that made the decision that I should be based in Samoa. So so that's the reason why I'm here. Your expectation then is that you will be staying in Samoa for, for how long? My expectation is that I will stay in Samoa until my council tells me otherwise. And that could be years? It could be years. Whatever the council decides, uh, I'm happy to abide by that. And does it impact on the work you do as the vice-chancellor, whether you're there at a peripheral campus instead of the main campus? I wouldn't put it that way, uh, Don. I think I think one of the best things that's happened is that no vice-chancellor of USP has ever spent much time at any of our regional campuses. So first of all, you know, I've been in a very privileged position that I spent quite a bit of time at one of our smaller, smaller campuses, which was Nauru, which gave me a real insight into, uh, you know, the trials and tribulations that not only our students face on a daily basis, but that our staff face. And then, of course, now I'm at our, in terms of physical size, I'm probably at our second biggest campus, although in student numbers, probably there are more students at the Solomon Islands campus. But I'm getting a real idea again of what needs to be done in the region and and kind of negligence of or, or how the regional campuses have been neglected for a very long time. So this gives me a real opportunity to address some very long-standing issues that, you know, USP should have confronted. And being on the ground, so to speak, gives me an opportunity, which I don't think I, I would have ever understood the depth of the issues that are involved. The branches of the USP could well expect some sort of tarting up. Absolutely. We've already begun that process. Look, I want to talk about this matter of the, the money that's not being paid by the Fiji government and hasn't for like nearly three years now. How important is that to the running of the university? Look, I think... Any time when a very significant amount of money, and I think from our calculations at the moment, it's 78.4 million Fijian dollars that hasn't been paid, of course it's affecting the university. We're not able to do a lot of things that we would normally do. And 
And I, I think amongst them, one of some of the principal things are, are things like we've deferred maintenance. And, and I inherited a problem where in 2019, we did a complete analysis and took to our council that we had 36 million Fijian, they sold in Fijian dollars, million dollars worth of deferred maintenance that had occurred over a 10-year period. And that needed some urgent fixing. And I made a commitment that we would spend $5 million a year to fix this and, and to catch up. Now, of course, we haven't been able to do that. My aim was in five years to uh, catch up on all the deferred maintenance by investing in it. So, you know, we can't do that. And that's all over the, the 14 campuses that we have. Uh, you know, we've had to really defer maintenance. We've had to make some decisions about infrastructure and, you know, projects like automation, which we really should be undertaking. These have all been put on hold because my view has always been that the priority is student learning. So we have diverted all our spare cash to ensure that our our students' quality of education is not affected. So even during the, the very difficult COVID time, my senior management team and I, we made the decision that we would release extra funds to teaching and learning to cater for the special circumstances we were in. And, and Don, I mean, you know, I'm very, very proud that uh, last year, worried the world universities with real impact had us at number 11 in the world for crisis management. Now, we've slipped one place in the 2022 rankings, which just came out. We're now ranked 12 out of the 50 countries that made it for that category, 50 universities that made it for that category. And also, we were, we've now just over the weekend, we found out we've been ranked in the 100 to 200 most innovative universities that have real impact. So, you know, I, I think despite all the challenges, I'm really focusing on the positives. And I think that's a real testament to what our staff have been able to do. They've shown their true resilience and they've shown that despite everything else, our top priority is to be a great university and to really look after our students. In terms of this debt, a well-known former staffer at the USP, Dr. Watan Nasi, has suggested that the fees for Fijian students could be increased to effectively cover that amount that the Fiji government hasn't been paying. <coughs> What's your response to that? Well, look, I, I've spent quite a bit of time reading uh, Wadhan Narsi's analysis, which was published in the Fiji Times in an opinion piece. And, and I think he's got a lot of things right. You know, I think he's absolutely right. This is not a grants issue. It's actually a subsidy issue, which is the first point I would make. I think what's different, though, is that if we were back in 2015 or even in 2018, I would say Wadhan's analysis really holds. We need to we need to do this. We need to move the burden from government to tuition fees. Now, I think at this particular time when we have so many students struggling to pay fees and they are predominantly Fijian students who are studying as private private students, I think if we were to go to the uh, the Wadhanasi scenario, I think that many of those students simply would not be able to uh, to attend university, and so. I think I, I have a great deal of sympathy, and I, I think it's, he's right. I think this is something that needs to be put on the table, and I think that our council should consider all options, and this should be one of the options that they should consider. But I think where the economies are, this could have a real detrimental effect on our students. Tim Masu, who was communications minister in the outgoing Papua New Guinea government, wants to see tighter control of the Electoral Commission and scrutiny of candidates. Mr Masu has just won back his South Bougainville seat, one of nine Pangu Party members returned so far. Don Wiseman asked him about the violence that has gone down across the country in recent days and what can be done about it. 
but they began by talking about the South Bougainville win. It was a clear win for me, and I have dedicated this win to the rural people of South Bougainville, and I'm sure that the win belongs to them. The country is currently in turmoil in some areas, isn't it? Were there any of these sorts of issues around South Bougainville? We didn't have any of this uh, kind of issues in South Bougainville, and I uh, owe it to to the people of South Bougainville for, for displaying maturity. Uh, also displaying respect to the laws of the Electoral Commission and, of course, the laws of this country in making sure that the election process ran very smoothly. What's happened in the rest of the, or much of the rest of the country, do you think? I'm, I'm not too sure. I, I don't know what happened. I really don't know what is going on because, you know, every um, electorate uh, has its own locality and, of course, they have their own issues at their district level or provincial level or, or anything like that. It, it just surprises me, you know. It, it's shocking also for, for me to hear and learn of all the violence that is taking place right around the country. It's indeed you know, really, really bad, bad, bad for Papua New Guinea and uh, you know, this is one of the worst I have seen uh, in, in my life. Yes, you've had a few days to think about it. What sort of things would you be advocating to ensure that this sort of thing didn't happen again? Well, we, we need to we need to tighten up the electoral uh, electoral commission laws. Uh, the new government uh, in the eleventh house uh, convenes, and we need to really discuss how we can stop all this kind of. There are so many things we can do to to make sure that the people, you know, are not dragged into this and, and no violence takes place. And of course, you know, we we need to first of all candidates who are who are standing for election in all the electorate. They should be screened properly. You know, they should have no police records. They should have good qualifications. You know, some kind of criteria should be used. Also, we should increase the nomination fee. You know, from now it's you know a man one thousand kina. You know, anybody can pull out one thousand kina from somewhere and, and you know face nomination as uh, to, to contest. But of course, all the other you know other issues that brings all this you know like candidates. Candidates are the ones who incite. And I am sure that if candidates are standing and they are seeing that the numbers. Are are not progressing and somebody is pulling a lot of numbers and is going forward start to do all these things so some kind of law must be um, instituted you know so that uh, candidates they have problems they have to do something you know not, not inciting their supporters to go on rampage and all these things so from afar i've seen a, a fair few of these png elections and there's always been talk about getting better prepared for next time but once Parliament resumes, it seems all the MPs forget about that. What they clearly need to do is ensure there's plenty of money to ensure that the uh, no, I, Electoral I, I Commission think, can get started early. Is, um, the issue is that the Electoral Commission is, is the, is the um, body that is uh, entrusted to look after the elections. And, you know, something I don't understand is that why does the Electoral Commission, you know, they sit for five years, they wait for five years, so they should do all the common roles, they should do all, update all the common Roles. They should do, you know, all the things that they should. Have they got the resources to do it though? Are governments giving them the resources they need? The, the resources. The government gave them a lot of money in this election. We paid everything to the electoral commission. We paid resources that they needed, but they are ill prepared, I guess, and you know, maybe not enough qualified people to run the election. So 
It takes a whole lot to do a post-mortem on what happened. And I'm sure that the government will come with few, you know, few, if not many changes that we can change the and turn around this kind of attitude and this behavior. We need to carry out awareness in the country, in the rural areas to educate. For commission, they sit in there for like election gone, five years, they will sit down, they do nothing, I don't know what they do. So, you know, electoral commission should get some of the blame on what is going on today in the country. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Nakbaglevu, mo demanda.